Has Alec Murdoch's alibi been blown up? There was a hearing today in the Lori Vallow and Chad Daybell matters. Makes you wonder if anything ever really gets done in Idaho. Is Brian Koberger being investigated for other cold cases? The Delphi defendant, Richard Allen, well, now he says he needs more time. Let me give you an example of what evil looks like. And then finally, our dumb criminal of the day. Let's talk about it. Good day, everyone. My name is Scott Reich, and this is Crime Talk. Thanks for watching. You know the drill. Subscribe if you haven't. Like if you do. Leave me a comment below and hit that little bell for notifications. And remember, you can listen to us on any of your favorite podcasting apps. And before we get to the docket, that's right, let's support the people that support Crime Talk. Go to crimetalksearch.com, sign up for that background subscription. While you have that background subscription, you can do a background search on as many people as you would like. That search is done literally while you wait, takes less than five minutes, and the report is sent to you immediately. It's going to have information about whether somebody has a criminal history, whether they're on a public registry of some type. Are they married? Are they divorced? Do they have liens or judgments against them? Things you want to know when people are coming into your life. So go to crimetalksearch.com, sign up for that background subscription. And remember, you can do as many searches as you like when you have that subscription, but you can cancel at any time. All right, let's go ahead and open the record for February 9th, 2023. And first on the docket, we have Alec Murdoch. Now, prosecutors allege that Mr. Murdoch shot his wife, Maggie, and son, Paul, at the family's hunting estate in South Carolina at approximately 8.50 p.m. on June 7th, 2021. That's going to be a key time. 8.50. He then fired up his Chevrolet Suburban at 9.06 p.m. and then drove to his mother's home in Almeida around a 15-minute drive uh, from that property. The prosecution is alleging he did that in order to manufacture an alibi. That's what the state is suggesting. Now, data has been seized from the computer of Alec Murdoch's 2021 Chevrolet Suburban, which took, get this, it took the FBI a year to decrypt uh, and get access to this. And it appears to have, well, shattered, blown up, uh, destroyed Alec Murdoch's alibi, you pick the word. Let me know what you think. So we know that now through this decrypted information, we know that Alec Murdoch's car went into park at 9.22 p.m., apparently arriving at his mother's. Then 21 minutes later, at approximately 9.43, the car is taken out of park again, indicating that he was headed back to home, Moselle. Now, remember, he told detectives that he was at his mother's house for around 40 minutes and instructed the caregiver, Shelly Smith, to say the same thing. Although she wept, as she told jurors last week, that he was only there about half the time, only 20 minutes. So between 10 p.m. and 10.13 p.m., the car was taken out of park five times. The log data does not prove the car was moving, is what Dwight Falfoski, an FBI electronic engineer, told the jurors. However, Murdoch was holding a shotgun when the police arrived. He could have driven back to the main house and then back to the kennels around 400 yards from the house in the kennels from uh, after retrieving a firearm. Now, Falfoski said the data from the Suburban's onboard computer was encrypted. 
not something that he had ever encountered before, and he told jurors that the manufacturer had done this. So as a result, the FBI had to take another 2021 Chevrolet Suburban and reverse engineer the computer encryption to crack the code. The vehicle then goes back into park at 10 p.m. The log data does not show whether the car was moving, but the 16 minutes that elapsed from when he presumably left Almeida correlates with the normal journey time to Moselle. Now, Murdoch called 911 at approximately 10.07 p.m. and reported he had returned home to find Maggie and Paul deceased at the kennels. And the FBI automotive forensic expert uh, said Thursday morning, as well as part of yesterday, just before the court broke, that he shared a timeline of the activity recovered from Alec Murdoch's car the night of June 7th, 2021, beginning about 9.06 p.m. Specifically, data shows the vehicle is turned on and is taken out of park. 9.22 p.m. The car is put into park. It was out of park for approximately 16 minutes. At 9.44 p.m., Murdoch's car is taken out of park at 10 o'clock p.m. The car is put in park again at 10.01 p.m. The car is taken out of park at 10.01 p.m. in 29 seconds. The car is parked again at 10.01 in 30 seconds. And the car is out of park at 10.01.43 seconds. The vehicle is parked again before shutting down at 10.04 and 49 seconds. The vehicle is back on, taken out of park at 10.05.55 p.m. And the car is parked once again at 10.06 and 18 seconds p.m. Murdoch calls 911 with Bluetooth connected to his car at approximately 10.13 p.m. The car is taken out of park. And investigators did not find a message indicating it was parked again. The witness said occasionally the system will miss such messages. And the expert said he couldn't determine if the car was moving when it was taken out of park. The data only records whether the vehicle was in park or not. Prosecutors hinted the timestamps at 9.06 p.m. and 9.22 correspond to Murdoch leaving the family's rural estate called Moselle to visit his mother on the night of the murders, and the timestamps from 9.44 to 10 p.m. indicate the return trip. After Murdoch called 911 at 10.06 on June 7th, he told investigators he returned to Moselle's main house to grab the shotgun, which was later seen carrying in body cam footage. Let me know if you think, you know, we've obviously got the Snapchat video where people that like Alec Murdoch, that are, I think, still his friends, say, that's his voice. I know his voice. And at that video, right about 8.48, I think is the exact time there. Mm, yeah, not good. And then he doesn't leave until after that. Certainly a little suspicious. Now, they won't exactly be able to find the exact time. Remember, they're going based upon cell phone data. So keep telling everybody, you have no idea what is in your cell phone, the amount of information that is uh, detected and available for anybody. If they're not you know, data mining it to sell to somebody, the police are using it to um, dig up and possibly looking for the truth. Let me know. This is alibi over? Is the case over? We'll see. Next on the docket, there was a motions hearing in Lori Vallow and Chad Daybell's case. And it really makes you wonder, does anything ever really get resolved in Idaho? I'm not sure. Several items were on the docket, including a motion to sever the cases, 
Uh, there's some issues regarding Lori Vallow's mental health evidence. And obviously the trial is scheduled to begin April 3rd. Lori Vallow, when she came into the courtroom, was wearing a white blouse and black dress pants and has a big smile on her face, apparently. Now, it's interesting. I understand dressing for trial, but I do not understand allowing a defendant to dress for pre-trial hearings. It just makes no sense. You're in custody. You wear the jail smock. It's that simple. Anyway, apparently Lori was uh, getting along with her attorneys, which is good. We want to have a good relationship with the attorneys. And um, Chad entered the courtroom after she did. Now, first on the docket was a motion filed by Lori Vallow's attorneys to dismiss the case for lack of a speedy trial. Needless to say, the state objects to granting that continuance. Now, Jim Archibald argued the case on behalf of Lori Vallow. And um, Mr. Archibald argued that Lori Vallow's constitutional rights have been violated as she has not waived her right to a speedy trial, and the trial should have legally happened within six months from the date of arraignment. Why would he ask for such a thing? Oh, that's right. That's what the law says. That's right. Now there is an exception for good cause. They can extend that in co-defendant cases. That law's there as well. But usually we're talking a couple of weeks, not months. Anyway, we digress. Anyway, Mr. Archibald argued that here we are with a trial set the defense knows is outside the speedy trial setting. The state knows that it's outside of the speedy trial setting, and the court knows as well. So what's the remedy, he asks? He says the Idaho legislature says the remedy is for the indictment to be dismissed. Mr. Archibald said that the statute is rather clear, and the speedy trial obligation is on the prosecution, not the judge, not the defendant, not the defense lawyers. The obligation to respect a speedy trial is the government, the prosecution. I've been saying that all along. They have a duty to protect the record. But instead of saying, we'll go try this case any place, anytime, anywhere, what has the prosecution done? Delay, delay, delay. Oh, we're not ready, judge. We're not ready yet. Usually you hear that from the defense. Anyway, is the judge going to grant this? I would find it hard to believe that he would do that since he's the one that found good cause and he's not going to say that he did it wrong. That's going to be left up to appellate courts if in fact, there is a conviction. Now, the prosecutors argued on behalf of the state, saying that the court has already determined that good cause to continue or delay the trial outside of the six-month statutory speedy trial is sufficient. The government said there were 44-day delay from the defense team that resulted in the vacating the January trial date. This was the time Lori Vallow's competency was in question. I agree. That time is told. Those 44 days don't count. But guess what? Once the, once the clock starts ticking, it's on the prosecution to get them to trial. Anyway, the prosecution has asked Judge Boyce, obviously, to deny the request of Ms. Vallow. And uh, Judge Boyce said that he'll issue a written decision soon with his ruling. Don't be surprised. It's not going to get dismissed. I would literally fall over right here in front of the Crime Talk microphone and hit my head on the Crime Talk desk um, if that in fact happened. Judges just don't admit that they're wrong. They just don't do it. Next was the uh, Lori Vallow's attorneys asking the judge to allow individual voir dire examination when it comes to picking a jury in this case. And they want to be able to talk with jurors about issues such as religion, mental illness, and drug use. 
Now, Prosecutor Rob Wood says state believes that small groups are good when it comes to voir dire, but is going to object to defense attorneys asking jurors about their religious affiliation and what congregation they belong to. Judge Boyce granted the motion in part, allowing the individual voir dire, but says that small groups will be used and then individual examination will be used for sensitive issues. That's really straightforward. You do the small groups, you qualify them. If somebody has something that they don't want to discuss in front of everybody, then you simply go in chambers. There's court that's taken down. Everything is taken down by a court reporter. Um, that's normal. That happens all the time. Next was a motion to disclose the death penalty phase information. Needless to say, Lori Vallow's attorneys are asking the state to disclose any information in its possession or in possession of law enforcement, which might be relevant or admissible in the penalty phase of the case. Seems obvious. Do you think they'd want to turn that over already? Rachel Smith responded for the state on behalf of this motion, says that they will rely on any evidence used in the guilt phase for the pen penalty phase of the uh, proceedings, and they will offer any evidence and we will supplement before the discovery deadline any endorsement of witnesses that they intend to call at the penalty phase. Prosecutor Smith says that they have a witness ready to testify about hyper-religiousness versus using religion as an excuse or reason to commit a crime. Lori uh, Valdebel was apparently taking notes throughout all these proceedings, and then um, Lori Vallow's had a motion for the uh, pre-selection instruction to potential jurors. Both the state and the defense agree that some instruction needs to be given to the potential jurors before the jury is picked, obviously, and each side has submitted their proposed suggested instructions. Judge Boyce grants the motion to have the pre-selection instructions given to potential jurors. Oh my goodness, wow, we got something done there. He says he's working on what those instructions will be and will consider input from both the state and defense. So here's what it should be. The defendant is charged in an indictment with the death of her children. Uh, and Chad Daybell is also charged with the conspiracy of the death of his wife, Tammy Daybell. Uh, they're all charged in the same, same charges as a conspiracy. The defendants have entered a plea of not guilty. And if there is a conviction, the state will seek the death penalty. There it is. Done. They need any help? Just give me a call. Anyway, the state that had a motion to compel, basically saying that the uh, defense hasn't turned over a witness list, uh, and the defense says we'll comply with any and all lists and deadlines uh, as they come due. Judge Boyce denied without prejudice a motion to compel after the defense says it's going to comply. Shocking. All right, we got something else done there as well. Lori Vallow's motions hearing then concluded, and then Chad Daybell's motions uh, were set to begin after a short recess. Uh, Mr. Archibald indicated that Lori Vallow wanted to remain in the courtroom to see her beau that's right. During the Chad Daybell's uh, portion of the case, Judge Boyce said that that was fine. I mean, they are charged co-conspirators. Let them see. Why we're doing separate hearings, I don't know. Anyway, after Chad Daybell entered the courtroom, once again, he's wearing his white dress shirt and red tie. He briefly looked over at Lori and they smiled at each other. Ah, can you imagine? A little match made in heaven. Anyway, the first motion was Chad Daybell's motion to sever the case from his wife. John Pryor, Chad's attorney, says he has found issues with discovery and the case and the cases should be severed. Needless to say, the prosecuting attorney objects and says that Mr. Pryor's arguing was not contained in his written motion to sever and therefore they weren't prepared to go forward. So the motion to sever will now be continued until February 23rd so that both parties can adequately prepare and file additional documents.
I, really? Really? The DA didn't, couldn't argue, even if it wasn't completely in the motion. She knew it was a motion to sever. Everything at issue in the case could be an issue to sever. And she wasn't prepared to argue it? Come on. Anyway, Mr. Pryor's motion to compel regarding DNA results uh, was then filed. We talked about that last week. And he says, I do want the court to be aware that I did file a declaration with my DNA expert that we've read to you. Um, and he said that uh, once he gets the DNA results in three weeks, he'll need approximately 60 days. That would be past the date when the trial is scheduled to begin. The prosecution says the DNA results could be back by the next hearing, February 23rd. So they agree that the motion could be continued two weeks. And then there's the motion to compel will now be heard once again on February 23rd. Pryor argues that he needs more time to prepare for trial. The concern is that from December 25th until the present time, he has received five additional items of discovery and he needs additional time for his experts. Mr. Pryor says that he was given GPS evidence from the state that was significant and it has taken a significant amount of time for his expert to evaluate and issue a report. He does not expect to receive that report for at least another week. And Pryor then said that he was handed 1,100 pages of additional documents last Thursday afternoon that lays out additional witnesses that he may need to call. He states that even if he worked 24-7 in the next three to four days, he won't get through it all. And Mr. Daybell has not seen it at all, so he needs more time. Judge Boyce granted Mr. Pryor's motion to extend deadlines in regards to disclosure of discovery until March 13th. Original date was February 27th, and that was it. Really didn't get a whole lot done, did they? Except more extension and delay and delay. Um, I, I just don't get it. All the judge has to do is say, hey, government, you've had this case for three years. You could have tested all this evidence over the last three years. Why did you wait? Here's a firm deadline. You don't get to use anything after this particular date, so there's no need for the defense to ask for a continuance. If your case is so overwhelming, you won't need this late-breaking discovery. We'll leave it at that. I just get so frustrated because this case is not really that complicated. They have turned it into a complete monstrosity, and it is going to be a complete cluster. You know what I mean, okay? And if I was the prosecutor, I wouldn't want it televised either because I think they're gonna look like some bumbling fools. Just saying. Anyway, Brian Koberger, is he being investigated for additional cold cases? Possibly. Investigators in Pennsylvania, uh, where Idaho murder suspect Brian Koberger attended college, are digging through cold case files for potential connections to the alleged killer. Now, Koberger, who was arrested in December in regards to the stabbing death of the four University of Idaho students, previously studied at the Northampton Community College and the DeSalles University, both in Pennsylvania. The natural question is to start wondering, is this guy wanted? Well, at least that's what the Northampton County District Attorney, Terrence Houck, stated. And while authorities previously confirmed that Koberger had no previous criminal records, Houck said he ordered his staff to review their local cold cases for possible links to the suspect. The Northampton County authorities used a crime information center to comb unsolved cases for Koberger's height, weight, methodology, and other characteristics, but they did not find any connections as of yet. In fact, nothing with respect to Koberger has come up in their investigation uh, regarding cold cases or unsolved cases to this point, but they continue to pursue any leads. Mr. Houck's efforts mirrored those of the Lehigh County District Attorney Jim Martin, 
whose jurisdiction covers the DeSalle University area. He said, the first thing I did after Koberg's arrest was ask the director of the Regional Intelligence and Investigation Center to see if we had any contact with this Koberger. Martin's search, however, only turned up a 911 call Koberger placed when his car was locked behind a gate on a bike trail. And there was a response from him thanking the police and apologizing for any inconvenience that he may have caused. The police did note that uh, the county does not have any unsolved murders that fit the MO of the Idaho Slains. And Koberger obviously was extradited from Pennsylvania and remains incarcerated at the Latah County Jail there in Idaho. And he obviously faces four counts of homicide and one count of first-degree burglary. And he'll be back in court on June 26th for a preliminary hearing. Richard Allen, the Delphi murder guy. Remember him? Remember the guy that demanded a speedy trial? Well, guess what? The lawyers for the Delphi murder suspect, Richard Allen, are asking for a delay in the key bail hearing scheduled for next week. Now, Allen's defense team filed a motion Tuesday for a continuance for the February 17th hearing as well as a delay for his March trial, which has been set. Mr. Allen faces two counts of murder in relation to the February 2017 deaths of Abby William and Libby German, and the Indiana State Police announced his arrest in October of 2022, more than five years after the homicides. The defense said it has yet to receive the entirety of the discovery from the state and was not yet prepared to proceed with the bail hearing. Now, Allen's counsel anticipated receiving the remaining discovery materials by the end of the week and said it lacked adequate time to review the discovery in preparation for the bail hearing. As a result, the defense is asking for special judge uh, Fran Gull for the delay. And if the hearing is continued, the defense acknowledged the court would likely have to push back Mr. Allen's trial, which was scheduled to begin on March 20th of 2023. Now, last week, the prosecutors filed their response to Mr. Allen's petition for bail, saying that, well, all the evidence adds up to a very strong and uh, what they refer to as proof evident presumption great as it relates to Mr. Allen, and therefore he should not get bond. Now, Allen's attorneys have urged that the evidence wasn't strong enough to keep Mr. Allen behind bars as he awaited trial, and they're asking for him to be released given a reasonable bail amount. He's being held without bond since his arrest. Now, at his last court appearance on January 13th, Judge Gall said a jury would be convened from outside Carroll County and expressed skepticism that the trial would meet in March of 2023. Now, Gall ruled last month the jurors would be brought in from Allen County for the trial, which will remain in Carroll County for logistical reasons. All right, next in the docket. If you ever thought maybe evil doesn't exist, let me show you evil. Look at this guy. A teenager tried to lure a gay man to his home to murder and eat him. And he's been sentenced to 45 years in prison. We, dis we discussed this case when it first came out. Remember Chance Seneca? Well, he's 19 now. Anyway, it was revealed that he had this plot and it was inspired by Jeffrey Dahmer. Mr. Seneca kidnapped an 18-year-old uh, by the name of Holden White back in 2020 after meeting him on a dating app. This one was Grinder. What do I tell you about those dating apps, ladies and gentlemen? Hmm. Be careful. This is like a great time to plug CrimeTalkSearch.com. Anyway, he attempted to kill him and was planning on preserving and, you know, maybe partaking of various body parts. Mr. Seneca revealed to the police that he viewed Grinder as his hunting ground 
and he had been inspired by the serial killer Jeffrey Dahmer, spending months planning out his attack. Seneca intentionally targeted gay men, as Mr. Dahmer did as well. Seneca had also intended to eat and preserve the bodies of his victims, as Dahmer had done as well. Now, Seneca and White's exchanges began in May of 2020 with the two interacting via Grindr and Snapchat. Seneca pretended to be interested in White and planned an outing to meet him, luring him with the promise of playing video games at his apartment. But Seneca's true purpose was to seize, kidnap, abduct, and hold Mr. White for the unlawful purpose of killing and dismembering him for his own gratification, as alleged in the complaint. Now, Mr. Seneca and White met up in June of that year with Seneca picking him up in his car and driving him to his home in Louisiana. Mr. Seneca proposed sex to Mr. White and got him to put on handcuffs as a dark joke. To make sure that uh, Mr. White was deceased, Mr. Seneca hit Mr. White in the back of the head with a hammer and maybe did something with an ice pick right around the neck area, according to the documents. And uh, Seneca also used a Bowie knife to uh, do bad things to Mr. White's wrists. Miraculously, Mr. White survived. That's right, he survived. And uh, Mr. White spent three days in a coma and is still recovering from his injuries. Now, Mr. Seneca had planned to preserve some of the uh, body parts and, you know, kind of do a Dahmer thing, uh, so to speak. But he said he couldn't complete the act after seeing the exposed bones in White's wrists. Really? The guy goes to all this trouble and then he wimps out? I mean, this, what, this guy can't even be a good serial killer. I mean, are you, are you serious? Come I'm joking. Okay, I'm joking. But this guy all hard, oh, I'm going to go kill people and eat them. And then he gets disgusted by seeing uh, his wrists cut open. Loser. Come on. Anyway, after committing the act, Seneca called 911 and claimed he had uh, killed a man. He was arrested at the scene and was indicted on three charges, hate crimes with attempt to murder, kidnapping, and possession of a firearm. Well, Mr. Seneca got 45 years in federal prison for kidnapping and attempted murder. Loser. <laughs> Can you imagine that guy's going to be completely humiliated in prison? He has this big plan, and then he gets disgusted by his own plan? Like, <laughs> seriously? What a loser. Speaking of losers, let's talk about our dumb criminal of the day. Two people were arrested after authorities said they allegedly stole a semi-tractor truck and attempted to hide it by spray painting it. Investigators received an anonymous tip regarding two people, a man and a woman, allegedly spray painting a Peterbilt semi-tractor truck outside a Days Inn motel. Investigators said that the truck's original color appeared to be hot pink, and the suspects were in the process of concealing its original color with the spray paint. As the deputies arrived, both the man and the woman fled the scene, and the pursuit ensued on foot. Of course it did. After two hours, officials said both the man and the woman were caught hiding in the woods. Uh, Delaney Coutinho Gonzalez and Rainier Lazario Perez were taken into custody and are expected to face multiple charges, including grand theft auto and criminal mischief. Officials said that Coutinho Gonzalez was later released from jail after posting a $13,000 bond. Didn't go back for the partner in crime. That's loyalty right there. Okay, take a look at this tractor. Really? Do you think they were really going to Paint it all pink. It's like that little thing you hear on Instagram or TikTok where like, they'll never know. They'll never know. Unbelievable. Unbelievable, ladies and gentlemen. The dumb things people do. They're usually illegal. 
Anyway, that's all we have for you today. Thanks for watching. We'll see you next time on Crime Talk.